Hello, and welcome to the League of Josh podcast. My name is Joshua, and I'm your host. Today's episode was recorded on July 8th, 2021. In this episode, I have with me Kennedy Aberdeen. Kennedy is one of the most fantastical of human beings I have ever met, in the truest sense of that word in the modern context. Who in the world is a valedictorian for economics and studies theater, only to become a student of law? She is so unbelievably creative, articulate, and fun to banter with. In our conversation, we cover shit. Hello, and welcome to the League of Josh podcast. My name is Joshua, and I'm your host. In today's episode, Hello, and welcome to the League of Josh podcast. My name is Joshua, and I'm your host. Today's episode was recorded on July 8th, 2021. In this episode, I have with me Kennedy Aberdeen. Kennedy is one of the most fantastical human beings I've ever met, in the truest sense of that word in the modern context. Who in the world is a valedictorian in economics and studies theater, only to become a student of law? She is so unbelievably creative and articulate and fun to banter with. In our conversation, we cover how she has managed to create connections through her numerous endeavors to create a theoretical gestalt of her life, contrasting so much only to demonstrate a lovely, clear picture. We discuss the theater in Shakespeare, the levels of language, the levels of impact language can have depending on how it is consumed, public speaking, and the moral and practical dilemmas which seem to be inherent in the justice system. Kennedy is a rock star and will forever be one of the, peop- the easiest people to banter with. I hope that you enjoyed this. Hello, and welcome to the League of Josh podcast. My name is Joshua, and I'm your host. Today's episode was recorded on July 8th, 2021. In this episode, I have with me Kennedy Aberdeen. Kennedy is one of the most fantastical humans I've ever met, in the truest sense of that word in the modern context. Who in the world is a valedictorian in economics and studies theater, only to become a student of law? She's so unbelievably creative, articulate, and fun to banter with. In our conversation, We cover how she's managed to create connections through her numerous endeavors to create a theoretical gestalt of her life, contrasting so so much only to demonstrate a lovely, clear picture. We discuss the theater in Shakespeare, the levels of impact language can have depending on how it is consumed, public speaking, the moral and practical dilemmas which seem to be inherent in the justice system, public speaking, and the moral and practical dilemmas which seem to be inherent in the justice system.
Kennedy is a brilliant genius lawyer rock star and will forever be one of Hello, and welcome to the League of Josh podcast. My name is Joshua, and I'm your host. Today's episode was recorded on July 8th, 2021. In this episode, I have with me Kennedy Aberdeen. Kennedy is one of the most fantastical human beings I've ever met, in the truest sense of that word in the modern context. Who in the world is a valedictorian in economics and studies theater, only to become a student of law? She is so unbelievably creative, articulate, and fun to banter with. In our conversation, we cover how she has managed to create connections through her numerous endeavors to create a theoretical gestalt of her life, contrasting so much only to demonstrate a lovely, clear picture. We discuss the theater in Shakespeare, the levels of impact language can have depending on how it's consumed, public speaking, and the moral and practical dilemmas which seem to be inherent in the justice system. Kennedy is a brilliant genius lawyer rock star and will forever be one of my favorite people to banter with. I hope that you guys enjoy this. Hello, everyone. Today, I'm speaking with Kennedy Aberdeen. Kennedy graduated from Thompson Rivers University with an honors in business administration, a major in accounting, and a minor in theater. Kennedy is the founder of the TRU Pre-Law Society. She's been a mentor and peer leader for SOBI, True Sue, TRU Theater Department, Faculty of Law, Peer Mentor Program, TRU World, and many more. She's also a knockout public speaker leading workshops on campus with a focus on projection and performance for the courtroom, which is tailored toward law students and faculty, conducted alongside Judge Hope Heisler. Most impressively, she is the co-host of, co of the Boss Chick Project, a woman-focused podcast conducted alongside Cassandra Blackwell and a large expanse of female entrepreneurs. Kennedy and Cassandra ooze chemistry and always deliver top-tier quality, whether it be discussing the opening of a spin studio during a global pandemic, the keys to public speaking, or overcoming battles with mental health. More than anything, I love the banter. Thanks a lot for coming on today, Kennedy. Oh my gosh, Can, I feel like Cass and I need that to be our intro music to our Bostrick <laughs> Project episode, like at the very beginning. And that was like very kind of like Morgan Freeman narrator vibes. That was very good, I really enjoyed that. <laughs> I, I did, so I did a few different podcasts with people that are higher than my pay grade of podcast worthy so I right. kind of coerced them into it over time it took a few months and mm -hmm. the first guy that I did I just gave him this killer intro and when we were getting into it it was kind of he was he seemed a little bit short on time mm -hmm. I asked him oh how long do you have and he went uh you know however long you need let's just like just take however long you need and whatever let's just do this and yeah <laughs> then I gave him this killer intro and he immediately perked up and was like oh cool okay that's awesome we're yeah. getting into this and then the second guy that I did I forgot to do his intro so I think he's one of the only guys that I actually haven't read a long pre-written intro mm -hmm. and he maintained that kind of slothish composure for the first little bit before we really got into it so oh interesting yeah, so you kind of have to tap into now. people's egos a little bit and mm -hmm. so by giving me like a long intro are you saying that like I am a podcast guest out of your pay grade then essentially like a little bit too top tier for you Josh everyone is out of my pay grade I am the penny stocks 
<laughs> hey, people need them sometimes. Like they're good, they're good investments, right? Exactly. Sometimes. Yeah. High risk investments. That's exactly. Me. We're all about high risk. High risk, high reward. Yeah. I'm not sure about the reward part, but definitely high risk. Well, you're having the BCP gals on your podcast. It's a pretty good reward, I'd say. That is true. That's huge. <laughs> That's the the consequence of penny stocks. <laughs> what what got you guys to start your podcast or you personally um so i think i'm sure Cass discussed this with you a little bit but we had this kind of both had a gap year um in between like our undergrads and well i'm going to law school in two months now so i had the last year off and i was just working at a law firm in the winter working at a golf course in the summer Cass is just working full-time and we kind of we would when we would spend time together because we're both very busy so when we would catch up it would be these like super long drawn out conversations and we would always just be like gosh like I wonder if anybody else has these questions or thinks the way that we think and probably the answer was no nobody else thinks that way and like wants to hear us speak um but then we were just always like I think it was two summers ago we were like let's just start a podcast I think that would be so fun and then we never did it because she went back to Ottawa for school and then this summer, we were just kind of like, you know what, maybe we should just start a podcast. And we just kind of went for it. And we were like, hey, we need like a really, um, I guess, like clickbait episode number one. Because mm-hmm. when you start a podcast, especially in such a small town, people are going to be like, ew, what are you doing? Like, why are you starting a <laughs> podcast kind of thing? Mm-hmm. So we were like, we're going to have a lot of people listen to the first episode. We should just make it something really kind of interesting and something that's kind of about us so that's where our like catholic school episode came from now we definitely have like changed our um, focus and we mainly obviously interview local women entrepreneurs or women in business or we have like a wide range of people we've had people like our last guest was from australia and england prior to that like a therapist so just kind of like expanding but honestly at this point I would say our goal of the podcast is to just keep learning from the women that we're interviewing and then sharing that with our listeners for us every episode now is just me and Cassandra kind of being like oh what what would something that we as young women um with what we think anyways our big goals in life what are things that we would like to learn about and what would maybe be beneficial for us to know as young women in 2021 how can we educate ourselves and then hopefully through what we want to learn, we can share that with the listeners. And it's funny because our demographic is like mainly men that listen to our episodes too. <laughs> like men over the age of like 40. Like it's really, really quite interesting. Really? Mm-hmm. Like our, we have lots of young women and we get lots of messages of people listening. But if you look at our statistics, it's like 40 plus men. And I'm like, okay. I'm not mad at it, but it's just it's men should learn from young women too, I think. So there you go you guys did a you guys did a little rant on red flags in relationships oh, and yes. yeah so maybe it's good dating advice for 40 plus men I think so hopefully if they're not trying to date like 20 plus women or 20 <laughs> women but you never know like to each their own but I forgot about that episode yeah I think our earlier episodes were a lot of us just trying to talk about the things that were and interesting and important to us and things that we've learned but what we try to mention almost every episode is just we are very much the uneducated portion of the podcast and we're just trying to like learn and share and we're in, in no means trying to instill facts and information on people and more just trying to be like come learn with us because we're trying to figure it out ourselves I find that to be such a good goal for podcasting is having people on that you can learn from and what I've tried to do is learn as much as I can about the person or people beforehand Mm -hmm. And then we can dive more deeply into the conversations that we have. 
but I think it's so much fun to that's that's kind of the goal is just to learn and have good dialogue with people well I think like people always say when you know if you're sharing something like if someone was coming on your podcast and they were like oh I don't know if I'm like qualified to be on a podcast like same thing with when I teach people with like the public speaking workshops like if you're up there and presenting something like as long as you know one thing more than anyone else in the room you can teach them one thing that's like truly all that matters right so if I know something that you don't know and you know something that I don't know we're both getting something out of this conversation right now mm -hmm. is how I feel yeah totally do you ever yeah. feel as though have you ever asked people to come on and they've rejected it because they don't feel as though they have something to offer to it <sighs> no it's never happened to us. I think if anything, we shoot YouTube high. We're like, hey, you want to come on our podcast? Like, you have literally 400 followers. You're from Canlis, BC. No. But honestly, like, we've had, we haven't really had that either. Like, we've had a lot of really awesome women who are way too qualified to be on our podcast, taking the time to be on our podcast. Like that um, Cassie Ademola from the like, that works at Amazon that HR professional, mm -hmm. she's an extremely busy woman, just like you probably had with that guy. And she was so happy to just like share her story and help us and in turn help our listeners listen on the podcast. I've, so I've never had that with related to the podcast. I've had that though in um, training people specifically one-on-one -on -one in like public speaking or having to go and give a group presentation, like something as simple as like leading a presentation in a university course where they have to present on, I don't know, something, let's pretend it's econ, like I don't know, supply and demand. That was like the worst choice for me because I know nothing about econ. But let's say they're talking about economics. Um, like as long as, I guess it was, I had to learn how to help people feel confident in presenting something that maybe they didn't necessarily feel like they were an expert on, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. What were your tools in doing that? What helped the most? I think for me, I learned a lot about, I don't want to say faking it till you make it, but um, figuring out how to have self-confidence in yourself and belief in yourself when you necessarily don't feel it is like a very good skill. Because for me, when I started leading the public speaking workshops at TRU, the only reason why anyone felt I was qualified to do that was because I had a theater minor and I was a business student. So they were like, oh, business student, like they can come to all these business networking events. But then, oh, she must be good at public speaking because she's in theater. And I was like, oh, I don't know, like I can give it a shot. But, and then it, it turned, like I, it was something that I naturally enjoyed doing and I, I love public speaking now. But when I was asked to lead a public speaking workshop for the law school and law students, being an undergrad student, knowing nothing about the legal profession, um, and being asked to teach a workshop tailored to like the courtroom, I was kind of like, whoa, like I'm the type of person where I'm sure you are too, where if an opportunity comes up to kind of make you feel a bit out of your depth or a bit uncomfortable, like I'm going to do it because I feel like that's how you grow as a person. But it doesn't mean that in doing it, it's not like the most terrifying thing because you know, especially me as a student who wants to enter the legal profession. And at that point, hadn't written the LSAT, hadn't applied to law school yet, but knew that I wanted to. I wanted to make a good impression to the legal community in Kamloops, right? Mm -hmm. So that was like a big adjustment for me trying to feel like, okay, I'm going to go up in front of all these more educated people than me and pretend that I'm going to teach them about something that's going to help them in them their career while I'm just studying accounting and theater. Um, 
So I think the first step in that is educating yourself as much as you can. So I read so many um, acting and voice books. I did like a directed studies with a vocal prof at TRU on projection and performance specifically. I went to courtrooms in Kamloops and watched practicing lawyers speak. And like, as just like a theater student watched and saw like, okay, I cannot hear this person and they don't articulate this, but they do this really well. This is how they have to present themselves in a courtroom. So how can I give them acting tips, but something that makes sense for an actual courtroom that's like realistic. Um, so it was a lot of research. Then it was a lot of practice on my own terms. I'm pretty sure I gave the spiel to my family, like on like five or six occasions, made them do a workshop on how to perform in the courtroom, like five or six times. Shout out mom and dad. Thank you so much for that. Um, and um, then it was when it came down to it and I had to leave the workshop, it was pretty much just beforehand. Like obviously I have all my rituals, which I talked about in our public speaking episode on the Boss Chick Project, but it, at the end of the day, it was, okay, these people might know a lot more about law than me. They might know a lot more about the legal profession, but like I know something, at least one more thing than they do about public speaking and how to prepare yourself to public speak and do it properly. And it, it really helped. I mean, obviously I learned a lot of things to do and not to do with that workshop, but I had a lot of law students who came like two years in a row to the same workshop and I had a law professor come and it was really nice and it was the validation that I needed. But I think that, so I think preparation really, but then you have to have like confidence in yourself and knowing that as long as you have one more thing to offer and teach them one then your offer is valuable, I would say. Can you repeat that last part? You cut out for a little bit. Oh, I would. I think I just said that um, as long as you feel like you have one more thing to teach someone, then you are offering something valuable to them. Did you get that that time? I did. Thank you very okay. much. Good. Yes. Well done. You're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> I'm here all day. <laughs> <laughs> What's up with the diversity of your academics? Accounting, theater, law. And I actually find it so cool how tightly theater and law play in. I have so many questions to do with that yeah. and kind of how those intersect. But I find it so interesting that you're a business administration, val not valedictorian, you're an honors, were you valedictorian? Well, I was valedictorian. Okay. Yes, I yes. was. Yeah. <laughs> so you're a business administration valedictorian in accounting yeah. and a theater minor and you're going to law school now. Yes. Um, I know it's I think that was like the theme of all my personal statements for law school was like oh, look how interesting my degree was it's weird right <laughs> it's not like a typical poli sci degree no so offense quirky. but apply yeah, applying to law school like so I'm so different like wow yeah. um, <laughs> no but I think that honestly like going to TRU and doing this dual degree was like by far the best decision I ever could have made because people think like accounting and theater are like these two opposites and like they have nothing to do with each other and that's like very true in, in a sense, but my degree was what made me and what helped me be valedictorian and graduate how I did and the experiences that I had because accounting taught me, you know, accuracy and detail and how to solve, um, problems with peers and be collaborative but then theater taught me how to think on my feet um, improvise but also taught me like being empathetic and understanding of other people for every theater course that you take 
in a scene, you have to be able to analyze your character and act, like figure out why they are the way that they are. So if you have a really petty or narcissistic character, you have to write this like in-depth analysis as to why they are the way that they are, like what affected their childhood upbringing that they act this way. So it kind of causes you to step out of your own shoes and like put yourself in a situation where you're empathetic to maybe why people in your actual life are the way that they are. And I think in law, that would help you a lot. Like if you're defending a criminal and you have to defend someone that you maybe don't believe what they in what they did or their values or them as a person, but not that you're trying to validate the bad choices that they made, but to defend someone, you have to have maybe some belief in who they are as a person. So I think it helps you analyze people and not just be so quick to judge. And that's what I learned a lot through my theater degree. Um, theater also really taught me how to take feedback very well like in acting you're going up and you're leaving it all on the stage and you're leaving a lot of room for judgment and you're not an acting professor very nicely but they'll just be like I don't believe what you just did like why did you do it that way right and everything you do has to have intention behind it so if you're in a scene and you're getting up after one line and sitting down across the stage your acting professor is going to be like why did your character move when you said that line like you have to have purpose behind every single thing that you do and i think in life and the choices that you make and, and in law too you have to have an intellectual intellectual reasoning behind why you're doing the things that you're doing or why the argument you're giving in court is valid you can't just spew bullshit essentially yeah so i think that's even though everyone thinks lawyers just spew bullshit right um so i think that that was something that it it really um taught me that I think yeah theater really taught me about self-confidence and being confident in myself um but being self-aware enough to receive feedback because you can only grow so much if you think you're the best you have to also be leave room for feedback and growth and like learning and being self-aware um that was like my rant about what I feel like I learned from both my programs but like I think you can put two and two together as well that if I didn't do my theater I would have never had the opportunities to public speak so much in the university setting, which led me to designing my first workshop for your undergraduate students and then the law school. And that in turn became how I became involved with the law school and founded the pre-law society at TRU, which then really piqued my interest in going to law school. Like it kind of, everything came full circle for me. I had a conversation with Matthew Dix last night and he's a storyteller and we were talking a little bit about what makes a story good. And one of the factors that we decided upon was having a good villain or a villain that people could relate to after they learn the backstory of them. Yeah. When, you're, when you're acting, do you find that when you have to put on that persona, persona, I believe it comes from Greek or Latin and it means a mask to project through. And when you put on that persona or you shift through personas as actors do so often, do you find that that ever has an impact on some form of mental health, being forced to empathize with people that are potentially malevolent. Uh, a while ago, I read mm -hmm. A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, and it's a book by Alexander Sobonichkin, who was a gulag prisoner in Siberia for eight years. And it took me a while to actually realize, or it took me a while to connect the ideas that this actually happened to people, mm -hmm. because we've never, as people who live in Canada, we've never experienced suffering like that. and yeah. At one point, there was a scene where he's in the cantina with, and everyone's essentially vying for as much food as they can. And he looks down the table, and it's the scene I remember best because there's this guy at the end of the table who's bald and he has no teeth, and he's just this 
unbelievably hard man. He might be missing a few digits or something. And I had to think to myself, that person existed. For him to be in this story, that person existed. And you have to put yourself into the shoes of the people in the story to make it more impactful emotionally. Mm-hmm. How do you find that with moving through personas in acting? Hmm. I think, I mean, I think back to the characters that I've played and I've never necessarily had to play a, I guess, a villain or someone of like a harsh persona. I've had a lot of fellow actors have to do that. I think that, um, is your question essentially how it affects like you mentally to create Mm -hmm. a good performance, I guess? Is that what you're saying? Or at least moving through different personas and I... I think most of method actors who yeah, when that's people a dangerous are, thing. yeah, when people are in a performance with them and they're a very loving character, then it's awesome to be a part of that set. But when they're a total dickhead character or a malevolent mm-hmm. character, then they just shift their personality. And I forget the documentary that not Adam Sandler. Uh, no, it's um, Jim Carrey. Thank no. you. Thank you. Yes, yeah, yes, Jim yes. Carrey, yeah. Yeah. Where he totally loses who he is mm-hmm. because he just shifts into Andy something. And after that, he dealt with a lot of what is consciousness and who am I? And if you're able to shift into different personas so often, mm-hmm. what makes you, you and what holds you solidified? Whereas you can always just jump into another human being essentially. Mm-hmm. I think it really depends on, I guess, a couple things. Like, first of all, your style of acting. Like for me, I am strictly Kennedy until I do my, you know, my pre-show warm-up, which is just like a breathing exercise, a tongue twister, that kind of thing. And then I can switch it on when I get, but like, honestly, from the moment that I'm off stage until I walk on stage, I'm Kennedy and then I'm my character. So I've never, I've never really had to feel like I have to convert myself to a character in that sense. But I will actually say like, I've had a job before where I worked at a golf course in summers on the beverage cart and my personality was a lot less um, intellectual, a lot more just fun, bouncy, flirty, which is my personality. But there were times when I would be off the golf course after working for like five or four months there. And I was like, oh gosh, like I'm a little bit more like, um, I guess, quick to banter and be fun and flirty. And just like my boundaries are a little bit looser than they were um, prior. And I, so I think I can actually like kind of understand what you're meaning when someone, when you are doing something for such a long period of time and you're almost putting this persona that works whether it's to um, entertain an audience or make a lot of money on a golf course like something like that mm-hmm. that um, those two personas like you kind of get almost addicted to it and caught up in it and then you kind of forget like ooh, like that's actually not my personality my personality is a lot more tame a lot more intellectual but you kind of forget that so I actually I actually can say I have experienced that outside of actually the acting world though and just in like a job and I think that even the people who know me at the golf course and at university and working at the law firm, like I would say those are like three very different Kennedy personas. Mm -hmm. It's not that any of them are false. Um, It's just that they are three different versions of me um, adapting to the environment that I'm in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It seems to be the, the personas that we undertake in different environments is the most efficient way to move through that environment. Mm -hmm. I think that's like, just like, I don't. I want. I want to say natural selection because that's not the right word. But do you know what I mean? Like yeah, adapting no, to your right. environment, mm-hmm. um, so that you can survive. Essentially, right? That's what animals do. But like, to make the most money at a golf course, to be the most successful law student, to um, have the best podcast. Like I know for me, the way that I speak on the podcast is very different 
the way that I speak on this podcast is different than the way they speak on the Bostrick project, which is different than the way that I would give my valedictory address, right? Mm-hmm. Like the three different versions of myself. Maybe they're all professional, but they're different levels. So I think that, I think that was a good question, but I think that we took it a different direction, but it worked. <laughs> yeah. It, it normally turns out that way. Yeah. <laughs> With, when you do your speaking, I think that there's a difference between acting, addressing, and expressing. And I think that mm-hmm. all of those go hand in hand with that persona conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, totally. Um, when, when I act, I personally, my favorite form of acting is Shakespeare. Like, I just love it because it's the most extra because nobody knows what you're saying. Hell so you have to, how did you go see the Midsummer Night's Dream? Mm-hmm. Oh, by far my favorite character ever because she was just the most boy crazy, like, psychotic but just like so in love human being and I just I've never I had so much love and respect for my character which I think as an actor you have to so like going back to your villain question if you're playing someone that you despise let's say you're playing a murderer um, and you just you hate everything about your character you have to find something that you like about your character to play that character Um, and that's why we do those in-depth backgrounds of our character so if you can understand they had a horrible childhood, they came from an abusive family, if you can build that story about your character so that you can at least respect them, then you can play it. And that's why I loved playing Helena so much because even though I was like, I would never chase a boy like that, gosh, girl, get some self-respect. I was like, I love her passion so much and her drive and she's so different from me that I, I respect her because while I'll never be like her, I understand that everything she's doing is just fueled by so much love. And that's why I just, every time I played her, like I was like in love with my character. Like I had a girl crush on her and it was, it was weird. So it's like, I didn't see myself as the character. It wasn't Kennedy, it was Helena, but I just cared about that character so much, which I think you need to have in acting to play the character well. Um, so yeah, acting for me is very much a different, a different persona. Um, and then you said articulating or speaking was the other one. Addressing. Acting, addressing, and expressing. So maybe addressing would be your valedictorian speech, and then expressing is more of an opinion view. Yeah. So expressing maybe like the podcast, right? Mm-hmm. So I think I would say expressing is between acting and art and articulating. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, you said articulating, right? I can't forget this. Addressing. Oh my gosh, valedictorian address. I'll remember that. I would say Good if thing. there's a if there's a spectrum, I would say. Um, it would be addressing on one end of the spectrum and acting on the other one. Mm-hmm. And then um, expressing was the, the other one in the middle. Okay. <laughs> that one, because I'm with Cass and I'm like conversation with you. It's very much a lot of my light personality comes through, but then we're also having like fully intellectual conversation. Right. But it's not this like formal um, address that I come up with my valedictorian address for that for me that is very much like I write the entire speech out I memorize the entire speech I know where I'm going to pause where I'm going to take a breath like I well when I'm comfortable with it I can just kind of go with the flow and improv it a bit it's very much structured and the way that I speak is much more formal than how I'm speaking now mm-hmm. and then acting is such a wide end of the spectrum where you let parts of your personality that don't even exist come through but your ability to express yourself in a certain way I think that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. What happened with a Midnight Summer Dream? I've been to a lot of Midnight Summer Dreams. I've been trying to figure out why people love it so much. And that 
that was the best performance I've seen. I've seen a lot of them. Oh, thank was, you. It was, was, there some, was there something that happened within the acting trope, within the directing? Because it seemed like everyone was just so into their characters and it felt as if there wasn't an audience. There wasn't, there didn't seem to be any ego attached to your roles. It was just you guys embodying these different characters rather than acting them. Mm -hmm. Thank you. It was, we had such a good um, cast and Catriona, our director, did such an amazing job. She is a extreme professional in the Shakespeare world, in the acting world for sure. But like she knows Shakespeare back, front, sideways, everything about it. So her passion towards Shakespeare and most of us were also taking a Shakespeare course with her at the same time and prior to um, being cast in the role. So we learned so much from her. A lot of doing Shakespeare though is not actually getting up and doing it. It's understanding the language and um, understanding there's like the heartbeat of the lines. Like there's a rhythm, almost like a song to lines in Shakespeare. And pretty much you have to translate every single line that you have to English. And that doesn't mean um, taking a line and translating it to how Google translate Shakespearean translates it. Like, I guess, um, call you me fair, that fair again, unsay, like one of my lines, not translating that to exactly how they say like, oh, you think I'm pretty? No, she's pretty. She's better than me. For me, it was that I do that translation, but then I have to translate it to how I would say it, how my character would say it. So I would be like, pretty, I mean, that was a bad example because I would probably translate it the same way, but translating it to how I feel like I'm saying it so that when I'm saying it in my head, even though I'm saying, call you me fair, that fair again unsay, I'm really in my head saying it in my own version, my own English, so that it comes across because the audience needs to hear what you're saying and they're not going to hear, call you me fair, that fair again unsay, right? If you're not saying it, like you're like, uh, you're calling her pretty, um, no, she is gorgeous, but you know what I mean? Like that, you have to have that, that adaptation within yourself. Um, and so we did a lot of book work with that, that play. Um, and I think we just had a lot of trust in each other from the get-go. We knew we wanted it to be a very physical play. I talked to Catriona and I was like, I love physical acting. And she knew that, like I danced for like 15 years. So I think the best way for me to express myself in acting besides like my extreme facial expressions is my ability to move and get like thrown around the stage by my fellow actors. Like I love that stuff, running around, crawling, being on my hands and knees. So I wanted her to put a lot of physical into it. She already wanted to. And then I created a lot of physical stuff as well. Um, and I think that caused us all as a cast to have so much trust in each other doing such a physical play. And that just kind of brings you together so much more to embody your role. But I think honestly in Shakespeare to embody a character, you just have to understand your language and make it your own. And then you kind of become one with the character because you're creating your own almost like script with what you're given and what you create with your character. I heard this beautiful line and it was that at first you possess the words and after the words possess you. And how do you interpret that with Shakespeare? Because I've, I've been reading a lot of Francis Bacon lately and I try to read it out loud because I've never really been able to read out loud. I started reading out loud last year and oh, really? I stumble a lot and I picked Bacon because he's a, 16th century essayist so he uses a kind of a mixture of it's old English old Germanic and 
I have to read it a few times. I have to read each essay out loud a few times before I can actually get the, the cadence and the actual beat and melody of the mm -hmm. essay right. Because the first time that I read it, it's just very monotone, very stagnant. And then over time, as I get it better and better, then I can actually understand what he's saying by adding different, enunciating words differently and actually understanding what he's saying. And there are some times mm -hmm. that it just stops me dead and I shiver for a while. And then I write down the line and try to memorize it over time because I think that reading something in your head is a little bit different than reading it out loud and reading it out loud and then actually memorizing it. Mm -hmm. it I think it changes people. Oh, 100%. I, this just like hit me because I just, that's, first of all, that's how I studied. I never, re I don't read. That's probably why I could never study the library. I don't read. I can't absorb anything just reading. I have to just speak it out loud. So how I studied for all my accounting courses too was just reading textbooks out loud and walking around my house. And in a way, I think that's like something that I learned from theater because I correlated memorization with speaking out loud and movement because in acting, you say a line, you move. That's how you memorize a line because on, on the Call You Me Fair, you walk across the stage, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think that that is super true and super powerful because you're you, the words possess you after you possess the words because you possess the words when you're reading it the books in your hand you have that tangible thing but once you say it out loud that's you bringing those words to life that's you hearing it through your voice not just through how you're reading it in your head um that's you taking somebody else's art but creating your own version of the art like it's always Shakespeare's lines but the moment that you start doing it in your own voice your own pitch with your own movement well then that's you creating art mm -hmm. I guess um I, yeah, I really like that that's very true because you might physically possess the words but they become a part of you and a persona that you're creating I think the moment that you start saying them out loud then you're not Josh anymore. You're, Demi you're Demetrius, right? Mm. You're this other character. Um, and you have to, I think that's you paying respect to the, to the words and the art that you're given. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree. I think that it's yeah. by saying them out loud as well. And by memorizing them, I think that it impacts people differently than just reading it on paper. I could read mm -hmm. a million poems, a million essays on paper, but once you say them out loud, I think that it gives them a different form of gravity. The, the gravitas of them is far larger. And mm -hmm. I think that also comes with the way that you say the lines, where if you say it more monotone and you're just reading it word for word, then it's a little bit different than reading it over and over and over again. There was, there was one line that I loved and it was, a man that studieth revenge keeps his own wounds green, which otherwise would heal and do well. Mm -hmm. And it's an essay that he writes on revenge. And the more that I read that and understood it, the more that I actually started to think about how that could be integrated into my own life mm -hmm. and how I see that in relating to myself. And especially with Shakespeare, these artists and this literature that has survived for hundreds of years, thousands of years in some cases, you're able to actually understand why it survived for so long when you analyze it and put it into yourself. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, Shakespeare work lines are um, 
timeless and all of the themes plays are time all the things that still occur in today's life that's why that they, they made she's the man with amanda Bynes based off of um the main one the main shakespeare play she's Sorry. the man you cut out oh, with viola bit. are you frozen right now yeah i think so i think oh it's probably for the best because i just had a brain freeze on a shakespeare twelfth <laughs> night that's why that they can make movies ba movies based off of there's so many movies based off of shakespeare's plays right because mm -hmm. the the themes are timeless but it's just i think that's when why there's a million different ways to do midsummer night's dream because all you need is the core theme and then you can do whatever you want with it. that's why the midsummer night's dream is not always taking place in the olden days it's taking place in 2018 2016 2002 um it's the same thing with the poem that you're reading that's why people when they go up and they read poetry at a poetry slam they're not just reading it monotone they're finding the parts that relate to them that are important to them so that there's an emotion behind it because I don't think any form of art and I think books are art I don't think any form of art is meant to just be read and absorbed once I think it's meant to be read and then thought about and either vocalized or I mean portrayed on the stage so that there's an emotional impact behind it did you ever study Shakespeare or any old literature while I'm you were in out. grade school? <laughs> I think our I think our audio is good, but you are frozen. I might be frozen. I'm likely frozen. Okay, you're back. Okay, so you said, did I ever study Shakespeare? The yeah, only time I ever st studied Shakespeare was in fourth year university. I did a Shakespeare course with Catriona before I was cast in A Midsummer Night's Dream. Mm -hmm. That was it. Before that, and my <sighs> I was so annoyed with myself. I was like, I don't even want to take Shakespeare. It's going to be boring. I'm not going to like it. It's going to be hard to act, blah, blah, blah. Now Shakespeare is like, I would much rather do Shakespeare than realism or just like general. Um, I like yeah, like realism, I guess, I guess the term that I was looking for mm -hmm. because it's just so intellectual. It really makes you think, but there's so much you can do with any line. Like any line, you can make it flirty or you could make it evil and um aggressive like you can choose how to be that's why there's a million different versions of helena a million different versions of viola from a midsummer from um 12th night like you can truly just make it your own and plus it's just like the most extra acting ever like you have to just overact and i love it so i love shakespeare but i was a convert because at first i was like this is gonna be so boring i don't want to do it which is just <laughs> Yeah. Ignorant. Ignorance is bliss, right? Can't believe I, it. I know. I remember being in high school and reading Hamlet. We did Hamlet <sighs> and the Midnight Summer Stream and everyone hated it. I think that I could understand the Elizabethan quite well. So I think that's why I liked it. Yeah. But I remember everyone hating it. And then getting into university, one of my best friends was an English major. Yeah. And, and that would be what we would talk about is dickens and shakespeare and all of this old classic literature and he just he has a way with words and he just describes things beautifully and mm -hmm. hearing it from him i think increased my appreciation of shakespeare and old classic literature because there's you're totally right there's a depth to it and i think a part of that 
where there are different million ways to act out Helena or Viola is every single person that acts out that role puts a little bit of themselves into it. And it's this combination rather than you're stepping into the roles of this character that's more or less one dimensional. It's you're combining two three dimensional characters mm-hmm. and that ends up creating something completely different. And for each person and each performance, it's totally different. Oh, I 100% agree. That was like a really, a really nice way to put it. And yeah, I think it's what you find that you connect with your character. I think that Josh, you could be playing the most egotistical, narcissistic, like I do every day. Character, I know, that's what I'm saying. You'd be perfect for it. And you could find something to value and respect in your character. And as long as you can find one thing where you're like, I can relate to that, then you're good. And you make that one connection. And then the character, once you give yourself to that character, you just kind of bleed into it and you create a hybrid version of yourself and that character. Um, And like you said, with Shakespeare having depth and your friend knowing a lot about it and you getting gaining more appreciation because your friend could articulate it properly. I think that's with anything in life. I think that there's a lot of things that us as young people and people in general, when they don't understand something or when they're ignorant to something, they don't like it and they don't want to put their energy into it. It's too difficult. But then once you can start to conceptualize it or learn about it, then you can start to appreciate it more. And I think that's with anything. We don't like what we don't understand. But then once we can kind of understand it, we can appreciate it more and therefore like it more. There's this beautiful line from the Bhagavad Gita, and it's that that which in the beginning is like poison, but in the end is like nectar, and awakens one to self-realization, is said to be happiness in the mode of goodness. Mm. And yeah. I think that's a I think that's a statement on sacrifice and what it takes to actually be good at something, and when something to ha- begins to have returning returns, and when your dividends start to pay off. So. Like a penny stock. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Full circle. No, I totally, I I get that so hard. And I think that that's a realization that we all kind of need to think about because there's a lot of things that are tough to sacrifice or put effort into when you don't immediately see returns and it's frustrating. But then once you do start to see it, you reap more benefits than you thought you had before. I might steal that for a public speaking workshop intro quote because that would actually be really beneficial because public speaking improving on that doesn't happen overnight. But I think a lot of people want to be like professionals after a workshop, you know, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I like that. That was sweet. It's a really good line. It's a really good book. You've got a lot of quotes just like on you. You're a reader, Josh. I've been, that's been my goal over the past. When did I start that? Reading? No, uh, memorizing poetry. I've been reading for a while now, but I started memorizing poetry. So anytime that a line chills me, I write it down in the back of my journal. And then every day while I'm doing any type of housework or not listening to podcasts or reading, then I'll just walk around and just recite the poems over and over and over again until I have them. I love that. I love that because you're also associating movement with memorization and talking out loud. And that's just like, oh, it's just like my favorite thing. (laughs) It's so much fun. I have to make sure that nobody's around or else it's, or else it's weird. Oh, I, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm just like talking to myself. Oh, but I always talk to myself. I'll be like, <laughs> oh, I'm just, come on, Ken, let's go. I'm on the dishwasher. I'm like, okay, sounds good. I think you have to be like a little bit insane to, um, I think all the best people are like a little bit, a little bit insane. Yeah. So. Insanity is underappreciated for sure. I think so. <laughs> How do you think acting ties into law? There was a, it reminds me most of Johnny Cochran 
the defendant for O.J. Simpson during the O.J. trial. And one of the lines that he used repeatedly was, it doesn't fit, we must acquit. And that became sort of a mantra for him because when O.J. put the gloves on, he continuously said, if the glove doesn't fit, we must acquit. And then mm -hmm. towards the end when he's giving his closing statements, he is talking about the, the hat that he was wearing as a disguise. And he said, the disguise doesn't fit. And if it doesn't fit, we must acquit. And it just became this thing. It was so catchy. And that seems to be a part of law is acting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I um. There's this guy, he's a JD, Juris Doctor in the States. His name is Joey Novak. And he created a essentially like an impro improv troupe for lawyers and law students in, in the States to pretty much learn about improvisation tailored to the legal profession. So I know that it, it's out there and people, people see the connection for sure. Um, I think that beyond, there's so many different aspects to how law I think is like theater. I think being able to, whether you're in the courtroom speaking in front of a hundred people or you're just in a boardroom speaking to five people, the ability to articulate what you're saying, come across confidently and it sounds kind of manipulative, but adjust your persona for your environment is going to be beneficial to you as a lawyer. Mm -hmm. the, the way that you speak to a judge is going to be very different than the way that you want to speak to your jury, who you want to believe you and empathize with you and feel for your client is going to be very different than the witness that you're trying to cross-examine or directly examine. Um, I think that being able to adjust your pitch and your body language and all the things that you learn about in acting for those situations while i know a lot of people might see that as like emotional manipulation i think that that is part of the role of being a lawyer i think that even if you're just a corporate lawyer who never leaves their office schmoozing and going for lunch with people that's a specific persona that you need to put that hat on to gain that client um so I think for just, you know, being a successful lawyer, acting and theater go hand in hand very well. And like I said before, being able to empathize and understand where people come from, dissect and not just look at that's a murderer, but look at that's a murderer who had this specific upbringing, who experienced this, who is dealing with this. And that's not to defend someone who obviously is a murderer, but you, you can't, I, I mean, I don't know because I'm not a lawyer, but I think it would be difficult to defend someone if you don't believe in anything that they are as a person, or at least believe that they have some sort of backing or value to them as a life. Because I think anyone, no matter the bad decisions that you make, they have value in their life, no matter mm -hmm. who you are. In the realm of authority and when to demonstrate authority in the courtroom, do you think that you would demonstrate more authority towards a judge or a jury? And what I'm thinking of mostly is tone whether you go for a higher pitch or a lower pitch? Um, I think it depends what you're trying to get across. I think regardless, when you're talking to a judge, you're going to be, you have to be respectful and um, professional. I think that I'm reading this book right now, actually. Um, it's like a law textbook, essentially written by law students, pretty much just like, everything that they learned, like a condensed set of notes for certain specific courses. And I'm reading the criminal law chapter right now. And a lot of it is on court etiquette and how you address um, a justice of peace or how you address a judge and how those differ. Um, 
I can't speak to it specifically because I've never been in a courtroom and I've worked with judges, but never in a obviously professional setting. I think that authority and professionalism and respect is like the core, probably when you're talking to a judge. I think when you're talking to a jury, it just depends. Like if I need you to believe that my client is innocent and I'm trying to get you to understand the struggles that my client has been through and I'm going to probably lower my pitch. I'm going to talk slower and quieter and I'm going to try to get you to empathize with the fact that my client's dog passed away last week and that's why he murdered this woman in cold blood, right? Like you're, <laughs> you're going to, you I think, yeah, I know, right? Innocent, but <laughs> I'll be so good. But um, I mean, for me anyways, there's these things called um, mirror neurons and I talk about them in my public speaking workshops for the law one specifically. And it's presenting the type of emotion that you want other people to feel. So if I want you to feel empathy or pity for someone, I'm going to lower my pitch, talk, talk softer, and express feelings of pity and sadness for my client because I want you to feel that way. And now that 100% is emotional manipulation. And if you're someone who uses that like in a relationship with someone, you're toxic and get out. But if you're a, but if you're a lawyer who's making $500 an hour and your job is to get your client out scot-free or at least with a lower charge, then yeah, you're, that's what you're going to do. I've heard a lot of different opinions on the coping of lawyers and prosecutors oh, when, they're, when they're going after people that they see as, whether it be guilty or innocent. And I've, I've spoken to a few lawyers that will say, like, I don't, I don't want to know if my client is guilty or innocent because mm. that's my goal is just to give them the best outcome that I can. And if I know, then that'll impact whether it's implicit or explicit, that's going to impact the way that I handle the case. Oh, 100%. I think that ignorance is bliss in a lot of ways because I know for me personally, if I find myself in a situation where I'm trying to lie, which I'm hopefully don't do much, but where you know something, um, but you're trying to portray something else. If I didn't actually know if it was A or B, but I truly believed and I wanted people to convince it was B, then I could, I could do that. But if I, if I know factually that it's A and I'm trying to tell people that it's B, probably without even knowing there's going to be slips in my defense that lead it more to being an outcome of A. I can understand that, how you wouldn't want to know if your client was actually innocent or guilty because I just think that would take a really big emotional toll on you too because I, I went and watched a couple... Uh, manslaughter and first degree murder cases in Kamloops when I was practicing for my workshop and it was so fascinating to me but the role of a defense attorney to defend someone when the victim's family is sitting in the front row it's like two years of this court case going on you can see the emotional pain and drain of them having to go once a month to see photos of their deceased family member and not still not having justice and still not having that like I think that unless you're an extremely um, detached human being that's something that would take so much of a toll on your mental and physical health I think that eventually you have to like a doctor have empathy but realize that it's a job that you're doing and your job is not to prove that this person is innocent and didn't do that thing your job is to 
I mean, I guess in a way it is, but I think from some of the books that I'm reading, it's your job is to get them off on the best, whether it's guilt innocent or whether it's like guilty with less charges. Mm -hmm. You're trying to get them the best version. You can fully think that they're guilty and still get them off as innocent. I got, yeah, I don't know. I think that the more that you think about it, the more complex it gets. And it's interesting because criminal law is the type of law that I'm most interested in. Um, and being a litigator over a solicitor, I think. But I, I would be interested to listen to those lawyers who have been doing it for a long time and how they've kind of emotionally detached themselves from the situation because it's a tough thing to bring home with you every day. Yeah, there are tons of jobs like that from, from my point of view that's really similar to psychiatry mm-hmm. where, or what's the other one? Like being, a, being in the foster system yeah, like a social Lots, worker. Yeah, that was the word I was looking for, thanks. Yeah. Having those jobs where you have to go home every day and see your family after seeing just the brutal conditions that people face or people tell you what their lives and then you have to go home and you have to deal with that. And there is some type of attach, disattachment that you almost need to survive mentally. Mm-hmm. You go. Sorry, go on. I was just going to say it's it's just it's boggling to understand like my mom was a mental health therapist for 30 years and you could see how that gets brought home with you no matter what like people get calls all the time of oh your client they're not answering the phone like they may have um they might be in danger like they may be self-harming like it's just that's a lot of stress than necessarily bringing home from being an accountant to nine to five not to say that's not stressful but it's a different level when you're dealing with people's livelihood and emotions just like being a doctor or a lawyer um, but you would understand that with the psych- psychiatry background and psych mm-hmm. and stuff. When you were in the court case, how do you think that impacted you? Or not in the court case, sorry, but in, actually in the courtroom and yeah. it, watching it all transpire before your eyes. For me, I have to see it from a very like naive situation and the fact that I was sitting there as a irrelevant party, just observing, watching the police officers, watching the families, watching the, having this man who, clearly did murder it was just going to be the defense of either first or second degree murder intent or not intent and he was sitting there and it was interesting to me it wasn't scary it was how the lawyer spoke and how the judge and the crown counsel it was just all very fascinating to me now had I done that every day for a year I think it would have started to have like a different impact and I wonder if my impact going into law is going to be it's going to make me more emotionally drained in the long term or if it's going to make me more jaded and hard and a bill and more able to deal with those types of situations I think that I can see the good in anyone and I like to think that I can see the good in anyone regardless of how their life has gone um but I think it's naive of me to say that 20 years down the line if I'm defending um in criminal court that I won't be impacted by seeing a front line of five family members absolutely devastated and gutted and you're the person having to interrogate them and ask them those questions. I think that would be ignorant of me to say, especially as someone who's just entering the legal profession now or legal school anyways, law school. Um, for me, it was just very simply fascinating, but I think that it overall could impact you in either a positive or a negative way as a human being either making you more empathetic or making you more jaded there was a great line by mr rogers that was there's nobody in the world that you can meet 
and hear their story and not fall in love with them. Oh yeah. Love Mr. Rogers. Yeah. I, Me I, too. I, oh, I, yeah. And whenever you awesome. said, I see him as soon as you said that, I was like, oh, he's so cute. Um, yeah, his, his glasses, right? Like his big glasses, right? Oh, well, maybe. Oh, maybe not. I don't know. I'm going to picture though. him with glasses now. Yeah, <laughs> like big glasses. Um, but I think that's true. And I think that goes hand in hand with what we said before about as long as you know you're teaching someone one thing about yourself or one thing about your life, then what you're saying is valuable. Like we could have a six-year-old on this podcast and she could teach us something that she learned in preschool the other day. And that would be valuable to us. And it would be interesting. And we would know one more thing that we knew before Mm -hmm. or something about her life, like everyone's lives. I think it's easy to live our lives and think that we're all main characters. And I know that I'm like, like I think about me and my sister and I'm like, Oh yeah, I'm the main character. She's like the side character, but she's also the main character in her life. And I'm the side character. Like we all, I think in these the days that we're in now, we can become very easily to just be kind of focused on ourselves and our lives. But I think no matter what, who the person is, you will learn to like something about them or at least respect something that's happened in their lives. There's people who are just far too fascinating to not, I would say. There's this really beautiful word. It's called sonder. And it's the realization mm-hmm. that everybody in the world has a, a life and a story as intricate as your own. But that's so weird to think. Like, doesn't that just kind of like you walk by people down the street and you just think, oh, that's just like a just a normal person walking down the street. That's an but NPC. They... Pardon? That's an NPC. You're like, that's just like when you're playing a video game. There's the NPCs, mm. not playable oh. characters. Oh yeah, I was like, I don't get it. But I was like, I play Sims, but that's about it. Like, um, <laughs> but it's so true. You're like that person's just existing, mm-hmm. but like they're not relevant to me or my storyline, but maybe they are, maybe they aren't, but you're the NPC to them. It's mm. just, it's, it's all very hard to conceptualize, but everyone, I just, I, it sounds so cheesy, but that's why I think like, no matter what you've done in your lifetime, you are a valuable human being and you have something to offer, even if you're, um, you've made mistakes in your life. Like no, not one, not one person is more valuable than another person, I would say. I think that that word, that idea is the core concept of empathy implicitly. I think that's where empathy comes from is understanding that people, every single person around you does have a life as deep and intricate as your own. And Mm -hmm. understanding that more helps you to work through your environment, but it's also very costly energetically and Mm -hmm. emotionally to think about every single human being like that. I know, a hundred percent. And sometimes people tell me I'm way too nice to be a litigator. And if I want to go into criminal law, I'm going to get eaten alive. So I think we should do another podcast episode in like 10 years when I'm actually a practicing lawyer and I can be like, oh yes, no, I'm extremely jaded and emotional now. (laughs) You'll be as monotone as I am at that point. Yeah, but it's good because you have a good podcast voice. I'm like a squeaky little mouse in the podcast here. And people are like, oh my God, turn that off. You have at least like a, and I'm like, I teach public speaking workshops. Listen to me. I'm like literally squeaking. But you you definitely have a very nice calming. Like I would let you read me to sleep for sure. (laughs) I make this joke every now and then, but I recommend my podcast to friends for sleeping and to enemies for driving. He's for driving. Oh my God. That's really funny. You should have that in your tagline of like your episodes. It's a little ruthless, but I like it. What my stand-up routine? Yeah. Yeah. You're sitting down, so you might, yeah, but yeah, I got it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I want to go back a little bit 
I had a conversation a while ago with my friend Isabel and mm -hmm. she is a respiratory therapist. And so she was working through a COVID. She got thrown right from school into the COVID ward, mm -hmm. out of the frying pan into the fire kind of thing. And we talked a lot about coping in the medical profession. Yeah. And a lot of the times they cope with humor and we talked a little bit off air, but it's just this really dark brute force humor for coping. And mm -hmm. you just have to, you essentially just have to joke about death. And, yeah. and that's how you initiate conversations with people about how you feel as well. And it's not just, Oh, that person died. Ha ha. It's, Oh, that person died. Ha ha. And a funny joke, everyone laughs a little bit. And then someone comes over and goes, okay, tell me what happened. Are you okay? And that's how you end up working through things. How do you think that people cope within your profession as a litigator? Oh, well, like I said, I can't really answer these questions yeah, now because sorry. I'm just, I mean, as a professional as a litigator, sure, I'd love to be a litigator now, but I, I just, I just want to preface that because I don't want people to listen to go, this chick hasn't even been to one day of law school yet, just talking about how to be a lawyer. Like, I'm just simply going off my experiences of the books that I've read and the lawyers that I've talked to working at the law firm that I did and the judge and stuff. But I'm reading a book right now called How to Be Sort of Happy in Law School. And it's not, um, not even how to be happy in law school, how to be sort of. It's not apparently possible to be happy in law school. Um, and a lot of it is on mental health and learning that you're going to go from being the high achiever wherever you came from to then being average because everyone was a high achiever. Um, no longer getting A's, no longer being the top of your class, um, not being able to juggle friends and family and relationships and all the things that you had before. Um, I think that a lot of it is learning and I think a lot of what you learn and how to cope in law school is going to help you cope as a lawyer. A lot of people say law school is harder than being a lawyer, vice versa. I don't know. I'll have to let you know when I get there. But um, a lot of what this book is teaching you, and they say that law school doesn't teach you how to be a lawyer. It just teaches you how to think like a lawyer and behave like a lawyer. Um, and practicing is what teaches you how to be a lawyer. A lot of the book talks about being able to set boundaries for yourself, being able to have an evening one day a week or not even an evening because it was the time for that but an hour one day a week where you don't talk about law school where you don't talk about your stresses you leave your law school friends you make sure you're spending time with people who aren't related to the legal profession because it kind of becomes this all-consuming part of your life and i'm assuming that the legal profession especially in your first couple of years when you're trying to prove yourself and become an associate from an article student it is an all-consuming often with networking events seven day a week escapade like you're doing it all the time mm -hmm. so I think being strong enough in yourself and I am not someone who's good at this I used to study all the time like I'm not good at boundaries but being able to go okay this hour of this day I'm not doing anything related to law I'm going out and I'm not even going to talk or complain or vent about my law school experiences and I think as a litigator dealing with that you have to find that outlet too you have to find outlets that are not related to your legal profession and I know a lot of lawyers who do that. They buy other businesses. They go to the gym every time on their lunch hour. Like they don't do lunch hours to swindle with other associates. They go on their lunch hour to go to the gym because they can't be on all the time. So I think from what I've learned so far, the way to cope with it is to set boundaries outside of your world. Because I think the legal profession becomes kind of 
all-consuming if you don't deal with it properly. And it has to, because to be successful, you can't be a lawyer that works eight hours a day. Like you just can't. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is a difficult topic for me to bring up because I'm a guy. Okay. But with how much work it takes to get into these professions and to be one of the higher ups in those professions, I only ask because you and Cassandra talked about it earlier in your podcast about what it means to have a family and the societal impositions on women, whether in, in regard to working versus being a yeah. caretaker and all of those things. And how do you see yourself balancing those and what are some arguments for and against? Yeah, and that's that's interesting. I um I was talking to an associate at a law firm in Kamloops where I was working a couple months ago and we were talking about that and I was like, Oh, you're you're an associate now, like are you gonna wanna have kids soon? Like, are you someone that wants to make partner? Like, are you wanting to get married? Like she's in a long term relationship and she was like, Yeah, I think I wanna have kids one day, I do and obviously right now I'm in my late twenties and I want to work for a bit. And I was like, Well, does it concern you that it might be harder to make partner if you're taking time off from maternity leave or doing these things. And she was like, I thought that going into law school, but now I work at this firm and there are three or four female partners who here who have paved the way, who are some of the top partners at this law firm who are married with three or four children. Like it is very feasible Mm -hmm. and doable. Um, I wouldn't say it's something that like doesn't concern me because for me right now, I'm 23 and I, know that the biggest priority in my life for me right now is going to law school and having a career that I'm extremely passionate about, whether in 10 years that's practicing law or doing something completely unrelated, related to law, but maybe not being a lawyer. Um, That's my biggest, that's my number one right now. But I also know a lot of people who I'm starting law school with in the fall who are in their late 20s and who are engaged, who want to have kids in the next maybe like six years, five years. I think that there's always going to be a bit of an underlying concern. I don't think there can't be. I think that hopefully the workplace is getting a bit more adaptable and understanding that, you know, men, if they're having a kid, that's still going to take time out of their lives to go and do that. It's not just women who are doing that. I think a lot of the time, you know, it's like, oh, well, they want to be partner in five years, but are you planning on having kids? That's not a question that's ever asked asked to a man, mm-hmm. right? Which is interesting and unfortunate. I'm pretty sure it's like illegal to even ask like a woman that in the workplace. Like, I think that's an HR concern. I think you could ask that, but um, I'm not also into HR, so I don't know. I think that for me though, it hasn't really been a concern of mine because that's not in my next five, six year plan to get married and have children. Um, but I think, and I've learned a lot from working in a law firm that there is a place for it and it is something that is respected. I think that maybe if you're working in a downtown law firm in Toronto and you have to grind seven hours a day, 14 hours or 14 hours a day, seven days a week, I think that something sometimes has to give if you're going to want to work at a corporate law office downtown New York or something. I don't think it's always going to be a world where everything is fair and you can have everything that you want. Mm-hmm. But I would like to think that the workplace is adaptable for people. I don't really know if I'm answering your question. I'm going on a bit of a tangent, but it's a hard subject to talk about when you're like, for me, I'm only in my twenties and I, I haven't really had to experience that. 
And I've seen a lot of women do both, but I've also seen a lot of women that are in their forties who have amazing careers that weren't able to, maybe they would have been able to, but they were too afraid to, I guess, try because they didn't want to risk losing their career to a man. Mm -hmm. Did I cut out again? Oh, you're back. Okay. I'll repeat what I said. Um, I think that essentially like, okay, it probably worked then. I, I think I got it. I think I didn't cut out for too long. Cut out that out also. <laughs> Are you frozen again? You're frozen. I'm frozen, but I can hear you. Okay, good. It was a tangent. It wasn't a very good answer anyways. So. I thought it was a good answer. No, well, I, I don't think that there's a, I don't think there is a real answer to that yet. I don't think yeah. that there's been enough conversation around it. I, I had a, not similar, but similar in the vein of more taboo conversations with my friend Emma a while ago. And we were, we were talking about sex and the conversation of sex and marriage and how it's becoming a little bit more taboo to be sexually conservative. And I think that there are lots of different things that go into that yeah. conversation, but like I, I think, I think even abortion is in there somewhere and marriage and having like having a family and having a career as you get older, rather than having kids when you're young, which is what used to be the thing. You'd have kids when you're 18, 20, and then you essentially just raise mm -hmm. kids and have really bad jobs and you hope that your kids do a better job. But I, I think that those are conversations that people aren't willing to have because they're so uncomfortable to have, especially for me bringing up what it's like as a woman mm -hmm. to be concerned about having children and the impact of that on career. I saw this really interesting take by a girl that works in artificial mm -hmm. intelligence. And she was saying that we have to be really careful with how we allow for AI to dictate and determine which people get hired in different processes, kind of similar to that Amazon worker that you had on the Amazon HR girl that you had on where she said that a lot of the initial process in resume applications is that first step where they just run it through AI. And if you have the right words, then they'll put you into the next contact or the next section. And what she was saying was that in artificial intelligence, in the computer science programs, a lot of the time they'll code for who is the most successful in that job as time goes on. And as the, the AI went down, they realized more and more that it was completely excluding women from the profession. And she had her own explanation for that. But a part of that that I thought was, well, maybe, oh, Oh no. Oh, she, I lost her. Well, oh geez. Just keep going. <laughs> uh, where, where did I cut out? Um, talking about the, I got up to the point of um, conservative and having kids when you're older now and not having jobs that you think are necessarily up to snuff, up to par, but hoping your kids to do the same. Oh, I just talked to myself for five minutes. Okay. Yeah. Okay, uh, so I'll try to get back on track. I'll try to go back and then get where I was going. Yeah. So, right, so th these are conversations that it's really difficult to have because of how taboo they are, in essence. And I think that the more that we disregard conversations that we don't want to have now, it's just going to create these huge problems later on. So I think it's yeah. far better to have the conversations now 
and just deal with the uncomfortability and make it a little bit easier to have the conversations and more socially acceptable to have the conversations. And then from there, I think that we can actually start to resolve issues rather than waiting for the curtail or the snowball to hit us in the end mm -hmm. when we're down at the bottom of the hill rather than stopping at the top. And one of the connections that I made was that there's this artificial intelligence researcher and there are very few women in computer science. And what she was saying was that similar to the Amazon interview that you guys did where in a resume, they'll actually run it through AI at the start and then they'll select out different words. And if you hit all of those, if you, whatever, you look through the company website and their, their values and you put all those values into your resume, then that'll translate into you getting to the next stage of the interview. And as time went on in this artificial intelligence with, with regard to computer science and admitting people into a certain program, fewer and fewer women were selected over time because it found that the people that were most successful at the end of their computer science career were, tended to be men. And a part of that that I thought was, and, and so that was the, her, her discussing this was saying, we have to be really careful with using AI because then we'll end up excluding these groups because if they don't end up, mm. because if we only look at the end, then we're gonna have some shortfalls in what could be the beginning. And the, the hypothesis that I had with regards to that was that maybe people taking off maternity leave, even especially in computers, if you take off six months, a year, however long, like if you're not on it all the time, then that's gonna have implications down the road. Mm -hmm. And so that was something that I thought was commendable from her part on actually addressing that and saying, hey, this is how we're doing things. This is the impact that it's having. So let's have a discussion about it. And I do think that things like women having lifelong careers and whether to prioritize family or career or how to find that balance, I think having those conversations is really difficult, especially for me because I really have no place in them. Mm -hmm. But I find that... Uh, Yes, I would far rather have those conversations now than deal with the consequences 30 years down the road. I do think you have a place in them if you're speaking and learning from a trying to educate yourself point of view. That's like me when we had Michelle um, from on our first podcast, first couple of podcast episodes talking about eating disorders. I've never experienced ED, but talking so it was an uncomfortable learning curve for me to ask questions without you know being ignorant or inconsiderate same thing for you but if you take it from the point of view of just trying to learn and educate yourself then you can like you said not have yourself in a precarious situation 30 years down the line and you could be a sounding board or a helpful hand to someone who's experiencing that rather than still being in an ignorant place. I think we all have people that we can learn from um, regardless of the stance. I think that it's interesting that you talk about the AI thing because a lot of law too is becoming virtual. Like the judge that I was working with, she said, oh yeah, like there's so many virtual things you put in. The facts of the case, you put in um, the time of day, what happened, what occurred, it goes through and then you get like a verdict. Like you don't even need to go to court. And I think that that's it's just factual but i think that law is so based on precedent past cases but it's not black and white 
to me, it's like the least black and white profession because one word changes and you can apply a totally different rule to something. Mm-hmm. So, but it's, it's interesting to me. And it's a bit scary in my personal mind also because of entering the profession. I don't want to enter a profession that's going to be virtual, but um, I think that it's kind of spooky a bit to see how much we're relying on computers to make decisions for us. Mm-hmm. And even with that point that you make where we're setting precedents and how those impact the future. I can't help but think of the Bill Cosby acquittal over the past week and how there was just some loophole in the law that resulted in this serial sexual assaulter being acquitted and what's going to end up happening if things do go completely virtual and yeah, whether or not have, whether or not that has an impact where you can go back and say, well, this case was tried this way and, we're not going to actually have a conversation about it, but it's just going to be the way that it is because that's how it was. And we're just moving forward on it. Yeah. That's why we love the appeal court and we hope that things get appealed, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I it's, that's a tough subject to talk about. And I don't, I'm not educated enough to, to speak on that, but it's just, that's the thing about the law is depends how good your lawyer is and depends what you could find because there's usually something you could find in interpretation nothing is in my mind black and white really mm. yeah a while ago i read yeah. prison and punishment by michel foucault and he talks about the prison the evolution of the prison system in france and reading mm. about old accounts of how prisoners were handled and suspects were handled is just so brutal and Although there are so many issues with the current legal system, I'm so much happier that I live in this one than almost any other system throughout history. He would talk about how suspects would be tortured for days on end until they finally confessed. And there were all these other ways to get people to confess. And then you go down to the local guillotine with your family and have a a guillotine picnic and watch people get executed. Yeah, it was super brutal. Cute. Yeah, that's uh that's uh that's why we love the constitution, so we can't have that. <laughs> but yeah, I, I most of the world is a lot of things that are just very quite difficult to fathom once you actually are educated about them or like history in the past. But I think like you said, it's good to just actually learn about it rather than just being ignorant and living in the bliss that is twenty twenty one, even though twenty twenty one is probably far from like a blissful euphoric state of life right now for anyone but um yeah i uh i don't know the the government and law it's i don't i wouldn't say any of it's fair in a lot of ways and a lot of the books that i'm reading say that law students really struggle because what they learn when they go to law school is they go to demand to hopefully help justice or their they're fueled by something that happened to them in their past that they want to represent and protect. And sometimes the legal profession teaches them that law is less just than they thought that it was. It's kind of a bit of a reality check to what life is actually like and that, you know, not all the laws are made to benefit everyone and every type of human being, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. There's, but like I said, I'll have to uh, get back to you on that. Yeah. There even, there's so much interest within the psychology of the criminal legal system. And 
I remember one stat that just blew me away and it was the, the rate at which people were let off in comparison to the time that the judge had his meal. So the judge was far more lenient right after, like right when he got into work. So after breakfast and then right after lunch. And it's just this, uh. it's just this precipitous drop as he gets hungrier and hungrier. Yeah. Homeboy's hungry. That's yeah. fair enough. I mean, it's super unethical, but like, I think being a judge would be the most fascinating job. I'm a Libra though. Um, so I'm very indecisive, but I don't know if I could be a judge, but I think like honestly, end all be all in like 50 years, I would love to be a judge. What was it like working with a judge? She's fascinating. They're so brilliant and educated that it's almost spooky, but, um, she was a retired Supreme Court judge, so very, very in, uh, intelligent, um, experienced, and, you know, it's interesting because no nonsense, but so empathetic still, and I didn't expect that. Like, mm. the ability to have a hard exterior come across, hard exterior, no nonsense, but to actually have so much empathy for the stories that I learned. And, um, and she could even see the injustice in a lot of the things that she had to enforce or um, the things that defense attorneys were trying to enforce. So I think like, it's so hard to be unbiased, but I think that's your job as a, a judge to be unbiased. Um, it, just like honestly one of the most brilliant people I spent time with but it was so 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 interesting I would say to see the empathy behind a 70 year old retired Supreme Court judge and all the life that she's lived and all the things that she's heard and what was so interesting though is she still had not regrets but like experiences and cases from years ago that still stuck with her that she remembered and that she still held important to her so I think that there's an example of that detachment that's harder to find than you think it is if she's doing that every day of the week you'd think she'd get used to it but there there's still those cases that still she feels guilt or remorse towards the outcome even if she knew she was doing the right thing that's yeah. tough yeah that's it's heavy yeah. but it's it's life and it's reality and it's the profession but it's it's nice to see that it she didn't become stone cold shut down you know she could still know that she had to do her job but feel the remorse and the guilt from the outcome that happened yeah yeah it's hard it's heavy dang okay one last thing I want yeah to talk about. shout out <laughs> okay how did how did you get so good at speaking I'm just naturally gifted, Josh. <laughs> um, I, <laughs> I, um, I always danced growing up, loved being the center of attention as a child, would always put on like shows, was always like very theatrical, but didn't actually act until uh, undergrad. Um, I gave the valedictorian address in high school as well. And that was the first time that I spoke really publicly. And I had a lot of people come up to me and be like, you're a great speaker. And I think a lot of that just came from me being like, holy crap, I have this huge responsibility. I can't let people down. So I practiced a lot and a lot and a lot. And I learned how to talk a certain way. And I just kind of, I've always been loud. So projection has always not been a problem for me. Talking fast has always been a problem for me. And then 
in university, I started to just do it more and people kept asking me to do it. And I think I talked to Cassandra about this before. And I think that it just became this responsibility for me to be good at it. So I thought people think I'm good at it. They expect me to be good at it. I better be good at it. So then I just kept practicing and watching videos and reading books and being trained and taking courses in public speaking that I put the work in. And I mean, if someone asked me to give a speech tomorrow, I could do it and I could do a fine job. But realistically, I would prefer someone asked me to do a speech in two weeks so that I can practice it once a day for two weeks so that I can go in feeling my best about it. Because even if I'm someone who's comfortable at public speaking and can pull something out a day before, I know that it's going to be much better if I put the time in. So even if I'm someone who can do that, I'm still going to put all that work in. So I think that if you're someone who wants to get better at public speaking, just like any other skill, you have to put that work in. Like you, volleyball, you had to keep practicing volleyball. You had to learn and get feedback from other people and put the time in. I think with anything, you have to put the time in. And now I think I've just created this like public speaking facade of myself where like I can just turn it on now. <laughs> um, but that doesn't mean I don't get nervous. I still feel like I'm going to puke every time before I go on stage or do something. I love it once I'm up there, mm -hmm. but I still feel the mass amounts of anxiety like anyone else would. I just know how to deal with it. And I know that the outcome is usually positive over negative. I had a really fun conversation with this guy, Trevor Reagan, and He's really big into learning. That's kind of his thing. Is he just teaches people how to learn. So it's super neat. And we talked about reappraisal. And before getting on stage, when you feel those butterflies, when you feel that anxiety, for me, it's something that whenever I feel that now, I think to myself, wow, this is awesome. Something, yeah. The fact that something makes me feel this way and there's, in, there's an intensive enough of a situation that results in me actually having this much of an emotional connection to it that I feel this this particular way is just so unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And I find that that helps a lot in changing the way that you see a situation and the way that you therefore react to it rather than going, wow, I'm super anxious. I need to calm down. It's, this is great. I cannot wait for this. This is awesome. Mm -hmm. Obviously my body really yeah. wants me to get amped up for this. A hundred percent. It means you care, which is like the best part about it. You can channel that anxiety and turn it into excitement because it means you actually give a shit and um, I always say the motto that I started to kind of live my life by after doing things that I felt like I wasn't qualified to do is like finding the value in vulnerability. Like if anything makes me feel uncomfortable or out of my depth or obviously not putting myself in precarious situations, but something that I know I can grow from, if it makes me feel uncomfortable or butterflies, I know that it's worth doing it because it's going to help me grow in some way. That's a lifelong lesson that everyone can use. You're welcome. Quote me on it. <laughs> What's I'll next write a book. It'll be one page. Yeah, please do. What's next for me? Um, enjoying the next two months of summer. My sister's getting married this summer. Maid of honor duties. It's, uh, it's a lot of work. Um, woo woo. Um, I'm enjoying my time just golfing. I, uh, and looking out at the Shushwap Lake right now, I'm out in Chase, BC for the summer. And I am moving to Vancouver to start at UBC Law in September. So my life is going to be a big adjustment in about 35, 40 days. So UBC is so prestigious. Yeah. Wow. Dang. Well, you know, it's a good university. I'm excited to go there. I felt really honored to 
have gotten into the schools that I did. And I'm excited to be learning amongst a lot of very intellectual people, which at, there would be at any law school. Any law school in Canada, I think, is really good. I think for me, based on where I want to practice and the type of law that I want to do, it was the right choice for me. But there's so many good law schools in Canada. You're going to fit right in. Where can people find you? Oh, God, I hope so. People can find me on, first of all, The Boss Chick Project. Listen to our podcast on any uh, place where you find your podcasts. Um, my Instagram is Ken underscore Gabrielle. I'm 90% sure. Ken with two N's. <laughs> um, and that's, or add me on LinkedIn, Kennedy Aberdeen, because we're being all professional about it now. Those are probably like the best places to find me. I'm like not going to drop like my Snapchat or anything, but um, those are, that's probably the best place to be. Uh, the BCP and my Insta. I post a lot of food stuff on Instagram. That's like one of my hobbies outside of studying food and golf pretty much. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's where you could find me. Thank you for this interview. It was very well done. You're very well prepared and articulate. And you made me think a lot, which I really enjoyed. I like thinking. Not sure if I'm prepared. Uh, articulate might be a step too far, but thank you for making it so easy. Yeah, I was just being nice. No, I'm just kidding. It was very well done. I really, I really appreciate it. You're very good at what you do. Thanks a lot for coming on. I appreciate it.